This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we take a dip into the history of the British seaside holiday. Well, the first seaside resorts really opened in the early 18th century and they were aimed primarily at the aristocracy. And this was mainly as a, for health reasons. The seaside was seen as somewhere that was good for your health. We hear how fish and chips became a national dish. Fish and chips were initially an urban phenomena. You know, they were a stock meal of the working classes in England. You know, they first emerged in industrial towns like Manchester and Birmingham. And we discover why the rich eventually started taking their holidays elsewhere. More to come on that shortly with our historical holiday expert, Dr Andrew Han. But first, let's take a brief trip through our next few episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. These are lizard canaries. It's the original canary that was found on the Canary Islands. Very common as a, a sort of a rich man's or rich lady's pet. And uh, we've got a lovely flock in, of about 25 in there. One of the things I'm fascinated about is archaeoastronomy. And this is a, a, a fantastic site to see that at work because of the alignment with the summer solstice. But the ancients were also interested with what was going on in the heavens. The Sertoff was originally envisaged as being a temporary structure. It was so popular that it was fairly swiftly decided to recreate it as a permanent structure. And the cenotaph that we have today was dedicated on November the 11th, 1920. And we'll be covering Kenilworth Elizabethan Gardens, Stonehenge and the Cenotaph very soon. Now, long before this song found popularity in the early 1900s... Oh, I do like the sea. I do like the sea. The English, and the British in general, have enjoyed taking health-enhancing breaks on our coast. We are, after all, an island nation. And if you're living on a small set of islands, you're never too far from the beach. The only unpredictable variable, of course, is our maritime climate and weather. Well, joining me to take a dip into the history of English seaside holidays is Dr Andrew Han, Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage. And the first thing I wanted to know when we spoke is at what point in English history does the coastline, which is traditionally the domain of the humble fishermen, start to become a place of leisure? Well, actually, the coastal areas have been popular since since way back in history. Even in Roman times, the wealthy used to go down to the coast. And we know that Mercia Island in Essex was a sort of destination for wealthy Romans living in Colchester. But if we're sort of bringing it closer to the modern day, well, the first seaside resorts really opened in the early 18th century and they were aimed primarily at the aristocracy and they began to frequent seaside resorts as well as the fashionable spa towns that they've been going to for decades and this was mainly as a for health reasons the seaside was seen as somewhere that was good for your health and so you got places like Scarborough and Whitby in Yorkshire which were becoming popular by the 1720s uh, after a sort of acidic waters discovered there, which was coming out of the cliffs, which was seen as having sort of health-giving properties, particularly at Scarborough. And by the 1730s, you've already got bathing machines there that are used for sort of people to be able to, to go and take the waters. Yes, and I know Queen Victoria had a bathing machine at uh, 
Osborne on the Isle of Wight, which we've covered in a previous episode. So this health aspect then, I know there is a line in the Jane Austen novel Persuasion where they're talking about Lyme Regis in Dorset on the south coast, and they say that the sea air always does good. You touched a little bit about the um, spa towns there, but what was it about taking the waters and and the health benefits? Uh, Why was there this vogue thing? Well, various medical treaties and brochures came out during the the early 18th century, which really promoted the health properties of both sea bathing, but also drinking seawater. And it was seen as being good for your health and particularly seen as a sort of curative and a a preventive measure for avoiding ill health as well. And there was particular books. There was one called Dr. Richard Russell published a book in 1753 on the use of seawater, which was very, uh, you know, recommended the use of seawater for healing various diseases. And another book by William Buchan on domestic medicine, which was very widely circulated, and this also advocated drinking seawater. And these sort of ideas were obviously percolating around in the area during the early 18th century, and they were a reason why people thought that going to the take the waters at the seaside was a similar benefit than going to take the spa waters at, say, Bath or Tunbridge Wells. But also sea air and the sun were all sort of thought as, you know, sort of curative properties. And uh, you can see why going down to the coast, the sort of bracing sea air, the sort of bracing feeling of getting into the water, how it could be seen as, as sort of bringing sort of vigour and, and, and vitality to someone who is ill. We talked a little bit about bathing in the sea and the perceived health benefits there, but there's also health benefits perceived with the rise of the spa towns. And obviously these weren't a new thing back in the sort of 1700s, 1800s. The Romans obviously had founded cities like Bath, Aquaesulis, and there are lots of other spa towns around Europe that uh, they were involved in. So what's the benefit of... um, Spa waters. Well, again, the spa waters were seen as having benefits both in terms of drinking the waters but also bathing in them. And the Romans believed this, and particularly where they could find sort of hot springs or chalybate springs which were issuing out of the ground, these were seen as having particular medicinal benefits. And really, from the Roman period onwards, you get local entrepreneurs and people with business acumen setting up bathhouses and spas to attract visitors and and that's exactly what happened in the period after sort of 1660 when spas started to become popular again and then continued through into the Georgian period where you get very entrepreneurial businessmen who identify a chalybate spring and set up a, a spa business and attract try to get patronage from the local gentry and from local aristocrats to come and visit and then some of these take off and become extremely popular in you know, places like Tunbridge Wells and of course Bath itself which was drawing on its older Roman heritage but also more local places which drew on a, on a more regional crowd places like Matlock or the spas in North Wales. So all spa towns aren't necessarily called something spa because I'm thinking of other ones like Leamington Spa. Yes, they are, but I mean, not all of them. You know, Matlock was Matlock Bath. There were various different places that had a spa, and they were literally at their peak in the sort of mid to late 18th century. There were literally hundreds of them around the country, some of them only, only serving a very local area, others of them which attracted great fame and attracted people from across the country. Well, that's something I've learned new today, I have to say. Um, I just assumed that every spa town had, was called something spa. I think it would tend to be those which didn't really exist as a town prior to the spa being discovered, like places like Leamington or Matlock or Tunbridge, which 
wells which were pretty much just small villages beforehand they took on the spa or wells or whatever um ending to the name of the place because that was what sort of established the town but other existing towns for instance at scarborough where they discovered the spring there their people went to take the waters but it was already an established town of course mm. and we've established now of course that human beings uh, for thousands of years have long enjoyed being by the seaside or or bathing in a hot spring Queen Victoria and Prince Albert enjoyed spending time on their beach at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. And how did they use their beach? And what was the motivation for building a home there? Well, I think Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were very much interested in the seclusion that Osborne offered, and particularly the fact that they could land directly on the beach from the Royal Yacht when the tide conditions were right. They actually built a pier there at Osborne so that they could bring their, their steam yacht directly to the beach and, and be able to disembark straight onto the beach. This was not just important for their own being able to travel back and forth without being in the public gaze, but it also meant they could welcome distinguished guests from the beach. Most famously, uh, Emperor Napoleon III of France and his wife, Princess Eugenie, who landed there in, in August of 1857 for an official visit. And Prince Albert actually planted up the grounds at Osborne so that the path leading from the beach up towards the house would create a sort of great reveal of the house as you walked up the path. So it was it was designed to be approached, the house to be approached from the beach, uh, which is, you know, quite unusual. And it's not only um, Victoria and Albert themselves that find the beach, of course, a place of interest. The royal children love playing down there, collecting shells, digging the sand with their governess, and they often played with Victoria and Albert down there. And there's many diary entries in the Queen's Journal where she records going down to the beach, meeting up with the children, collecting seashells and enjoying the weather down there. So, yeah, it's it was a great place for them. And, of course, we know that Albert was a, a very much an advocate of swimming and particularly swimming in the sea and he used to go swimming he went he used to go for a dip every morning and he it was he who introduced Victoria to sea bathing and encouraged her to construct uh, a bathing machine and he also created a floating bath for the uh, the royal children to teach them to swim and that was a sort of pontoon with a grating between it which could be raised and lowered to different depths of water and it was moored just off the shore from the beach and the children would be rowed out there in a little rowing boat manned by sailors from the royal yacht and then they would go and have swimming lessons there with a bathing woman who would teach them to swim. Yes, there's plenty of inventions that you can find there. Uh, The bathing machine being uh, the most interesting one. That is sort of lowered down into the surf, isn't it? And at that point, the Queen can quietly and discreetly have a swim around and then hop back in and then be dragged back up to shore in this machine. That's right. It's a quite an ingenious machine. It was the bathing machine is on rails, and it has a sort of uh, winding mechanism, so you can wind it up the beach and then lower it down into the water. And the queen would get changed inside, and then there was a sort of awning which would protect her as she sort of gently descended down the steps into the water, so she could get into the water unobserved, and then she could have her dip, and then come back out again. I mean. There's a fascinating diary entry that she records on her first dip in the water on the 30th of July 1847 when she says, I thought it delightful till I put my head under water when I thought I should be stifled. You were supposed to completely immerse yourself three times in the water and that was supposed to have the health-giving properties. So uh, it must have been quite an experience for her the first time she did it. It sounds like a baptism in a way. Like It sounds almost it biblical with that sort of trinity of dipping. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm sure there probably was some sort of religious element to it as well, because the separation of secular activities and religion at this period is much less than in the 20th century. With Queen Victoria doing all this bathing, I suppose it eventually caught on with regular commoners. When did the Victorians start to popularise it, bathing itself and also seaside visits? Well... It's really a a sort of continuum on from the Georgian period. I mean, we have the early Georgian aristocracy going down to sea bathing from the 1720s. And then when you get to the later 18th century, you have people like the Prince Regent, who later George IV, going down to Brighton and really popularising the idea of the seaside holiday for the for the elite. And as transport improvements, first of all, you've got the turnpike roads and steamships and then the railways. It enables more and more people to get more easily and more cheaply down to the seaside. And so you have not only uh, the aristocracy, but also the middle classes coming down for seaside holidays. And you get developments of beachfront hotels and villas along the, along the shoreline. And then, of course, in the ninth, later 19th century, you just get the working class day trippers, people just going down to the beach on excursion trains, cheap excursion trains for the day and having a good time and then coming back home in the evening. I was about to say, how would a typical Victorian then, who's got time and money, organise a seaside trip? Because how do you connect with the hotel where you want to stay? And is it done via letter? How does one do that sort of thing in well, those days? It's it would be by a variety of methods. I mean, in the early 19th century, in the sort of uh, the, the Regency period, you get a lot of the sort of aristocrats and large landowners would basically rent a property at the seaside for the summer months. And they would maybe rent it for several months, somewhere like Brighton or Weymouth or whatever. And they would go down there with all their servants and they would stay for an extended period. And it was almost like doing the season, like they would previously have gone to Bath for the season. They would just be going to Brighton or or to Weymouth for the season. And they would probably travel there by train or by steamship. I mean, for instance, we know from the uh, visitor books of the Lord and Lady Braybrook at Audley End that they and their family spent several weeks down at Ramsgate in most summers in the 1840s. And they would travel by train to Gravesend and then catch the steamer from the pier there across to, to Ramsgate. And then they would stay there with all their servants for three or four weeks. And they would have a bathing woman who would accompany them when they went sea bathing. And it was, you know, a sort of part of their yearly sort of cycle of social events. When does the common man start to enjoy the seaside almost alongside some of the richer people? It tends to come in in the sort of from the 1840s onwards when you start to get the railways allowing working class people from say London and the other industrial towns to to get down to the seaside and this is when you start seeing resorts really mushrooming in size and some of the fastest growing towns in the early 19th century are seaside resorts rather than industrial towns you know places like Blackpool, Bournemouth, Brighton and so forth for some of the fastest growing towns at the time and you'd have a lot of people who just go down as day trippers they would just go down on the train and they would uh, have these cheap fares that would enable them to get down there and they would go on the beach they would hire deck chairs so they could sit on the beach they would buy their fish and chips or their uh, candy floss spend uh, the day down there then pack up their things and head home at the end of the day and and this was partly made possible by the 
factory regulations meant that working class people had some more time off than they had done previously and and they were often only working a five rather than a six day week so that they had free time on a Saturday to go to the seaside and still being able to attend church on Sunday. It's very much a process that sort of gathers momentum during the 19th century so but by the the later 19th century by the sort of 1880s 1890s that you get literally hordes of people descending on the seaside resorts like Blackpool every weekend. How did people bathe then in the end once they got there? I'm trying to think of the evolution of attitudes towards conservatism and um, covering oneself up. How does the sort of... Uh, bathe, I know you're probably not a historian of bathing costumes, but how does it sort well, of no. develop over time? It's very much a slow process again. I mean, the public and authorities are very, really concerned about the morality of sea bathing in general at the beginning, certainly in the 18th century. So the first resorts like Scarborough, this was the reason for introducing bathing machines. It wasn't really for comfort, it was for modesty. As well as this, of course, we know that the men and women wore what we describe as very sort of modest bathing gear as well. I mean, the women would wear a sort of bathing gown, which you you see um, Victoria wearing in the you know the film Victoria, where she sort of it's it's like a sort of large skirt, similar to what you would wear out of the water. And the men would also wear long swimsuits, which were sort of like long johns, often in a sort of all-in-one swimsuit. So they would be fairly well covered, and then they would be sort of let down into the water in privacy from the bathing machine while sheltered under the hood. So really there was very little flesh exposed. And these bathing machines remain active into the sort of 1890s. You know, you're still seeing throughout the 19th century, most bathing is through bathing machines rather than people just walking out into the sea. And they only really start to be parked upon the beach towards the end of the century. And if you see seaside photographs from the early 1900s, they've mostly disappeared by the sort of beginning of the First World War. And that's when you start to see traditional bathing, how we would describe it. But beach wear is still fairly modest, even into the sort of 1920s and 30s. If you see bathing costumes from that period, they're much more sort of modest than we will be used to today. And it's only really post-World War II that you start to see restrictions on swimsuits being eased and whatever. Because quite often beaches would have sort of bylaws before then, which would indicate what was acceptable beach wear and what wasn't. And you'd have sort of officials parading around along the beach checking up whether people were were abiding by the rules and ticking off people who were showing too much flesh. Well, I understand there was also some segregation between men and women on the beaches. Yes, there was. It's only really from mixed bathing only really starts to sort of come into the fore from about the 1940s. It's very very recently really when we think about it. You know, we sort of assume this has all been happening for for decades, but it's really only uh, relatively recently that people had been able to bathe together. I and mean, obviously families would sit on the beach together. But when it came to bathing, there'll be designated women's bathing areas and men's bathing areas. What do you think was the, pardon the pun, sea change in the change in attitude over that period? I know it's very gradual, but... I think partly the change in attitudes comes from the media, you know, the way that advertising works, general sort of social and cultural landscape of the the post-war period. You know, you start to get a freeing up of people's morals in a way that that wasn't the case earlier than that. So particularly from the 60s, you know, we call them the swinging 60s, and that's really when things started to change and you get the sorts of swimwear that we would be associated with today. You also start to get going into the 60s and 70s, some beaches being designated as topless or nude beaches where people could you know nudists could go and the sort of thing so huge amount of change going on in the in the 60s and 70s from then onwards really beaches are very much how we'd recognize them today we've talked a bit about obviously the bathing the health aspects the 
the fashions and the bathing machines, etc. But there's also a lot of other invention around the Victorian period, which is the pier. Now, where did that come from? Why does someone want to walk on a wooden and metal structure that juts out into the sea like a peninsula? What's, what is the point of a pier? Well, piers are originally just a, a practical device for being able to embark and disembark from steamers. And they come in in the early early 19th century it enables uh, you know, places like Gravesend Pier was a place where the steamer could berth up people could get on and ride to other locations you know it was just a practical device it's basically then, it's a jetty it's a jetty yes but then you start to get uh, entrepreneurs seeing the opportunity while people are waiting to embark and disembark why not have some uh, facilities there some leisure functions and so the first sort of pier that's really a leisure pier is Ride Pier actually on the Isle of Wight which opened in 1814 and that was a landing stage for the ferries but it also had <clears throat> leisure functions and uh, it contained a pavilion at the head where there were refreshment facilities still today and then following on from there really during the 19th century you get a large numbers of piers being built the building of piers really reached its peak in the 1860s where you get 22 being built in that decade and then by 1914 there's over 100 piers around the country and they're probably some of the finest sort of bits of Victorian architecture that survive today i mean over 55 of them are still standing today and are still in use and they're still very uh, valued by the towns where that have them you mentioned the leisure facilities there and uh, refreshments uh, that sort of thing obviously the british seaside and the english seaside is very much linked with things like fish and chips which you've mentioned uh, sandcastles sticks of rock which we might associate with uh, towns like blackpool where did these all come from Pretty much all the traditions that we associate with the modern seaside resort are, are, are a Victorian invention. I mean, most of them would date from the 1860s onwards. Just to take an example, fish and chips. And this is actually, fish and chips were initially an urban phenomena. You know, they were basically a stock meal of the, the working classes in England. They, you know, they first emerged in industrial towns like Manchester and Birmingham. And you'd get fish and chips shops developing because when you get cheap fish supplies coming in and being transported inland by the railways, it's a cheap meal for working class people. But then, of course, once you get the resorts developing and the the working classes going on day trips to the seaside, they take their new eating habits with them to the seaside. So you get all the fish and chip shops opening at coastal resorts. And, of course, if you're there at the seaside on a day trip and you haven't got much money, being able to just grab and go and get fish and chips in a in wrapped in newspaper and go and eat them on the beach is much preferable to, you know, sitting down at a restaurant when you haven't got much money and you're not used to that fine dining aspect. Yeah. Other things like sandcastles, candy floss, sticks of rock, all those sort of things are all things that emerge in the nineteenth century, mostly towards the latter part of the nineteenth century, sort of eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties and so forth. And they're usually just sort of things that, you know, entrepreneurs come up with an idea and it and it catches on. I guess with everyone eating the fish and chips on the beach, the working class is coming to the beach. That sort of perhaps pushes out the aristocracy who had been occupying these seaside towns in the preceding few hundred years. Would I be correct in saying that rich Victorians was gradually pushed out of the seaside towns and started holidaying abroad because of this influx of the working class? Well, partly what you got was a sort of um, a variation of the, t- of the types of seaside towns. So you had some like Blackpool, which were unashamedly a working class resort. And then you had other places like Brighton and, and Weymouth and Scarborough, whatever, which, which tried to sort of retain that 
sense of gentility for Longo, although there were often different beaches within the town where the working class congregated or the or the middle class congregated and the wealthy. But you're right, I mean, very wealthy people, the, the aristocratic elite, started to holiday abroad, and, and in doing so, they were really following on a very long tradition. I mean, young aristocratic men have travelled abroad since the 17th century on the Grand Tour, and the tour of continental Europe was something that flourished really from the 1660s right through to the 1840s it was seen as part of the sort of finishing school for a young aristocrat to go and you know imbibe the cultural legacy of classical antiquity in the renaissance uh, it was a bit of, almost a sort of rite of passage a bit like going on a gap year after uni or before uni very much so, yes. But then, of course, when you get the introduction of steamships in the 1820s and the railways in the 1840s, it makes foreign travel much easier and cheaper for a wider range of people. And it opens up travel overseas and sort of the Grand Tour-type experience to a much wider audience of the people from what we would describe as the middle, upper middle classes. And so you see, like, sort of 19th century, most educated uh, young men and, and young women as well would have taken the period of travel in Europe as part of their sort of finishing school, so to speak often travelling with a governess or a travelling companion. But the sort of spread of the sort of idea of a seaside holiday, because a lot of these sort of grand tourists were travelling to the sort of major cities. They were going to Rome, they are going to Paris and whatever. They weren't going to the seaside. The idea of the sort of modern seaside resort really spreads out from England in the late 18th, early 19th century. But it's it's fairly slow to sort of take hold. And, it, and even in the early 19th century, you've, you've only really got sort of localised areas around the sort of English Channel along the French coast and then into Normandy and whatever and around the Baltic where you start getting other nationalities starting to sort of take to the beaches and go to seaside resorts as as the British had been doing for decades before and the traditional area we associate to with beach holidays today, the Mediterranean, really only develops in the late 19th century. I mean, these areas originally are, are seen as, again, areas where people would go for their health. And uh, during the 19th century, a lot of people, particularly with tuberculosis, would go down to the French Riviera to, to recuperate or to try and uh, to improve their health. It was actually, again, Queen Victoria who did much to popularise the French Riviera as a, as a place to go for recreation rather than health. I mean, she first visited the French Riviera, a place called Menton, in 1882. And then years after that, she went there most years for several weeks. And obviously where Queen Victoria goes, lots of other heads of state and celebrities follow. And so you get, you know, going from around 15,000 visitors to the French Riviera in the sort of 1870s, mostly there for their health, through up to 100,000 less than 20 years later. So you've got an absolute mushrooming of interest in going there to the Mediterranean in that sort of period at the very end of the 19th century. But obviously, the thing that really joins us all together as humans is the fact that regardless of why we're at the beach, I think we all like being there. We like being near the sea. We like the view. What do you think it is from an anthropological perspective that people and human beings like to be near water? Well, going a long way back to the 18th century, there's this notion of the picturesque and the idea of sublime scenery, um, which is, has to be sort of suitably rugged and wild. And the seaside fitted very nicely into this genre because it was often craggy coastal cliffs 
and the wide expanse of the sea and the you know the the fact you have the crashing waves and the beach and everything so the picturesque sort of movement adopted the coastline as as part of the sort of picturesque vision and and i think that really carries on through into the 19th century this idea of of being by the seaside as as having the special qualities the smell of the sea air the expanse of the water the the, the effect of the light on the water the coastal cliffs the distinctive buildings like the pier and the 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 coastal hotels that you get perched on the cliff all sort of creates this sort of particular atmosphere and then you get the sort of activities that you do at the seaside people do things they wouldn't normally do you know they go digging on the beach they eat candy floss they promenade you create this sort of special sort of culture around being at the seaside which is different and brings pleasure so there's an, this association of being at the seaside with uh, maybe an emotional nostalgic reaction and, and, and sort of taking you back to childhood so it continues to sort of create a sort of sense of well-being I mean every time I go to the coast you you you, you feel sort of invigorated and 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 nostalgic I think mm. and I think probably further back into time as well we were fishing in the sea or in rivers and it was a place that was life-giving it gave us food yes I mean the the, the coast has always been a place of settlement uh, of human settlement and gave resources in terms of fish it was a place where you'd travel from I mean quite often traveling by boat was quicker than traveling over land for much of the human history so it's been a transport high a super highway as well as being a, a place that brought food and pleasure and as I said sort of a sense of wellness and uh, and well-being you've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast to find out more about Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's private beach at Osborne on the Isle of Wight just head to the Osborne page of the English Heritage website We're back again next week, marking 10 years since the recreation of Kenilworth Castle's Elizabethan Gardens. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to review and subscribe, and we'll see you next time.